So I'd like to ask uh, Don Higgins, who's here with his wife Miriam tonight, all the way from Ontario, Canada, to share a bit of his spiritual journey with us. And Don, just speak as God leads you to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that at moments like these we we can be thankful for butterflies. And uh, we don't know where you want to take us even now, but uh, we just express to you our confidence and our trust in, in what you want to say. And uh, I pray that, Father, the spotlight shall not be on a man or a person, but on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we trust you to give us the words, for your word says that we are to open our mouths and you will fill it, or to take no thought for what we should be saying when we trust in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm always conscious when someone asks me to share my testimony because... I would rather speak about the things that God has done and the ways of God rather than the ways of man. And uh, when I share my testimony, I I usually like to give a a brief brief background to, biblical background as to what the pattern was in, in my life so that it's not something way out in the left field and we can see that it is a pattern that God uses. And the pattern that, um, that, I most best relate to is the story of Job. Uh, Job lived um, probably uh, probably at about the same time within four or five hundred years of Abraham and he lived like Abraham did without any written word of God. He lived without uh, without seeing God. Uh, we really don't know how he came to know God or we don't know his his journey up to the point of the first book of the first chapter of the the book of Job, but the Job, first Job chapter 1 verse 1 starts out by saying there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and it says four things about him. He was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, and he hated evil. If you look at an old King James Bible, it will have a, it will have a semicolon between the first two and the last two, and I believe that's indicative of something that... Um, God was really saying that here was a man who was blameless. Now, blameless and uh, upright simply means that he was a righteous man. And if he lived in the time of Abraham, within a few centuries, he was made righteous by faith. Uh, because Abraham was made righteous by faith, and so we understand that Job was a, a man that was made righteous by something that God had done in his life, and that was through Job's faith in God. And as a result of, uh, of this position that he had with God come the other two things, and that is that he feared God and he hated evil. And uh, just so that you get an idea of, uh, of what I'm talking about here, that's sort of the picture of my entire life. Um, from the very youngest of years uh, that I can recall, uh, I always uh, feared God and I hated evil. I, I would never got into some of the things that some people's testimony can relate to in terms of drugs and alcohol and mm-hmm. sin and debauchery. And, and I, I, I sometimes think that uh, we shortchange the Word of God when the angel said to uh, um, to uh, Joseph, thou shalt call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
I sometimes think that uh, Jesus saved me from sinning. And uh, I, that doesn't mean I was sinless, but uh, into, I, I really had never any desire to get into the things of the world. And, and so my life was what you might call relatively, uh, relatively good. Um, however, Job had, a, Job had a problem. And I think you know that uh, God gave permission to Satan to afflict Job and to literally strip him of everything he had, even though he was this, this righteous man and that he feared God and hated evil. Uh, there was a stripping or there was a breaking that had to take place in his life before uh, Job could be the man that uh, God wanted him to be. And uh, you will find that as the, as the difficulties came upon Job, he lost his children, he lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost all the things that were uh, physically important to him uh, until he came to a point of despair and uh, he, he's found on an ash heap uh, with pieces of pottery scraping open the, the pus oozing boils that uh, were on his body and uh, everybody scratching their heads and wondering what happened to this, this man. There doesn't seem to be an answer. Well, part of that answer, I think, is found in, uh, in uh, Job chapter 13 where, uh, where Job begins to lash back at the, at the counselors. And... Uh, he said, I am just as smart as you are. Why are you telling me this stuff? I'm not inferior to you. And you hear some of the words coming from his mouth that, uh, that uh, begin to speak of some of the inner things of his heart that were really not quite so pretty. And um, he talks about wanting uh, an appointment with God so that he can argue his case before God. And uh, so you see some of this uh, self-righteousness beginning to ooze out of, uh, out of this man. And while that was oozing uh, in a picture form, as it was oozing out of him in, in pus and his boils, it was oozing out now of his personality. And uh, though in chapter 13 he has a, a very infamous verse where he says, uh, though he slay me, I will trust in him, sounds like a pretty good statement for a Christian and uh, for a man of God. But in the immediate words following that, he says, but I will defend my ways to his face. In other words, I will be a good Christian, but I'll do it my way. Mm. And, uh, and so here's this, this godly man uh, beginning to ooze out of him uh, the vileness of his own flesh, the vileness of his own efforts, uh, trying to be a good godly person. And uh, he was trusting in God, but yet he was doing it whose way? Well, his way. And that too was the story of my life, uh, all my life. Uh, until God got a hold of me and began to deal with me uh, in the way that, that he dealt with Job. And in chapter 32, uh, and if you can count, um, chapter 32 follows chapter 31, and chapter 31 follows chapter 30, and chapter 30 follows chapter 29. And in those three chapters, uh, you will find that Job is talking about himself. And if you combine that with chapter 7, you'll find that uh, there are 104 verses in those four chapters when Job is speaking to his counselors. And you'll find out of the 104 verses that 238 times he uses the personal pronoun I, e, I, me, or my. And he's talking about the things that he was doing in order to bring honor and glory to God. And uh, this, of course, was an advanced case of perpendicular personal pronoun iitis. Uh, he was totally consumed with himself. And he was totally focused upon himself. 
And a fourth counselor by the name of Elihu came along and said, Why don't you fellows tell Job what's wrong? He's righteous in his own eyes. He is righteous in his own eyes. He's building his own case for righteousness rather than depending upon what God has done to make him righteous. And that too is a story of, of my life. Now, uh, the next few chapters uh, that follow chapter 32, we find that uh, for the most part God is talking. And uh, this, is, uh, this is the time when God enters the scene. And it's not the counselors, it's not Job, but it's God that's talking. And, um, and Job then in chapter 42 says, Now that I have heard God speak, I recognize how foolish I am. And by the time he gets to the sixth verse in chapter 42, he says, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Now there was really nothing that anybody could point to in Job's, in Job's experience that was really faulty. There was nothing about the things he did that could be openly called sin. There was nothing he did that would, uh, would defame him. There was nothing uh, in him that would make him of uh, um, less reputation than what the community thought about him. But the problem was he was banking his case upon himself and what he could do rather than depending upon God. And so he came not to abhor what he was doing, but he came to abhor who? Himself. He came to abhor himself. He came to hate himself. And, um, and that reminds me of the verse that Jesus said in John chapter 12, and I believe it's uh, verse 25, until a man comes to hate his life in this world, he'd be not willing to exchange his life for mine which is really quite a literal translation of what Jesus said. Until a man comes to hate his life in this world, he'll not be willing to exchange it for eternal glory. And so uh, the, the glory story of, of the story of Job was that the end of Job was greater than the beginning. And so after he repented and got rid of himself and saw the absurdity of trying to do things in his own strength, then God was able to bless him in an abundant way that was... Uh, it was far beyond his imagination or anybody else's. And so the end of Job became greater than that of the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the story of my life, and I want you to keep that in mind as I try and tell you some of the details of what happened to me. I was born into a Christian home, a godly father, a godly mother. Uh, my mother was the spiritual leader of the home. Uh, I was compelled every, uh, every week of my life to memorize uh, another scripture verse with the reference attached to it. I was not permitted to go to bed on Saturday night without my scripture verse memorized and being fully committed to memory. And so I, being a smart guy, I discovered I was using, a, because I was forced to go to Sunday school, I had, at, uh, by the time I was 26 years of age, I had 26 years of perfect attendance in Sunday school. I had never missed a Sunday one way or another. If I was sick, I had a doctor's certificate. If I was on vacation, I had a certificate or signature from another Sunday school that I was there. And and I was literally raised in the church. I, was, I could say I was born in the church. I wasn't, but my mother, uh, who died just about three months ago or two months ago, uh, had the certificate of when I was enrolled in the cradle roll at the, at the church. And um, that's in her stuff. Uh, and so I was raised in the church. I was inculcated with doctrine. I was inculcated with the scriptures. I hated it, 
but I had a Sunday school quarterly, and I used the Sunday school quarterly while I was bored in church on Sunday morning to learn my verse for the next week. So that by the time I got out of church, I had uh, two things accomplished. I had learned my scripture verse, and I had gone through the boring process of sitting through another sermon of which I understood literally nothing. And so uh, I, I despised what I, in a one way, I despised what I was uh, being forced to do, and yet today I'm very thankful that, uh, that my mother drilled me with that kind of uh, inculcation of Scripture. Dad was a man who was very stern, yet he was very kind, but he knew how to apply the Board of Education to the seat of learning, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, so I was raised in a very strict home. I could not go to a, uh, a town fair. I could not go to a bowling alley. I was forbidden to play pool. I was uh, forbidden to go to movies. I had never been inside a movie theater until I was in my 20s. Uh, I, I was forbidden to smoke. I was forbidden to do all of those things. I lived what was perceived to be a very righteous and upstanding life. Uh, by the time I was um, uh, by the time I was 15 years of age, I by default was uh, appointed the uh, the young leaders, the youth leader presidency in the in the church. I was a young people's leader. Um, I was. Uh, by the time I was in my early 20s, I was leading worship services in the, in the church. Uh, by the time I was 26 and 27, um, I would conduct the church services, and all the pastor would have to do was preach the sermon. Uh, that's, that's all he would do. Uh, I was um, left front and center. I was totally enmeshed in the church, totally in, enmeshed in church activity. Uh, I had a strong desire to to keep myself clean from the world. Uh, I completed uh, grade 10 in, high, in what we call high school, grade 10, or what would you call that, sophomore year, or um, yeah. whatever. We call that second year of high school. Okay. Uh, I didn't like the secular environment that I was in. I was uh, being brought too close to dancing and too close to all of these other things that I was not supposed to do. And so I had a desire to go to a Christian school. And so I enrolled myself at my own expense in a, in a Mennonite high school. And my wife was from the Mennonite community. And that's mm -hmm. where I met my uh, high school sweetheart. And uh, by the time we were finished with grade, grade 12, we were, um, uh, we were dating. And um, I went back one year to my um, first year of college, which in our country is called the 13th grade of high school. It isn't anymore, but uh, that's the way it was. And um, then I immediately enrolled in uh, what, what you would call a CPA course. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became a chartered accountant by the time I was, uh, I think I was 23 when I was a chartered accountant. Um, I never had any difficulty with my studies. I was always successful. Everything that, uh, everything that touched my life appeared to be just absolutely right. Uh, we were married at the age of um, 23, and I was 23 too, or just about. And uh, uh, we had four children uh, over the ensuing years. Um, all of them uh, came to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. By the time I was 29, I was elected to the church board, and over a period of 16 to 20 years, 
uh, I really held uh, the highest office in the church that one could ever want to hold. Uh, I was uh, vice chairman of the board. I was uh, treasurer. I was all of those things. You, you name it. The only the only thing that I did not really get involved in was the mission, the women's missionary society. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, I uh, I did it all. Been there, done that. Been there and done that. In my business career. I never get it. Never did get into public accounting, but uh, I hired myself out as a uh, as an office manager, and then I became the controller, the director of administration, and eventually became the president of a very large building supply company. Uh, we, if you needed something to build a building, we sold it. Uh, it wasn't just ceiling tile; it was everything you needed to build a building. Uh, I had 375 employees under me. Our annual volume in those years was, uh, our top year was 75 million. Uh, we had nine branches. We had uh, a fleet of trucks and cars that uh, I totally lost count of, but it would be in the hundreds. And uh, it was a large corporation, and I was sitting on top of it all. Uh, driving an executive car, living in an executive home, and everything that a man would want, I had, including four beautiful children. Uh, I thought things were going along very well, and uh, I was really sitting on top of the world. In 1982, uh, my term on the church, uh, on the church board, and the church authority uh, expired, and by constitution, I had to sit out a year. I wasn't uh, permitted to take the leadership role for that one year period of time. And uh, I became increasingly burdened to see God move in some sort of a powerful way in our church. By this time, I have to tell you that the church had become my idol. Uh, it had become, it had become every, I, I made a terrible, terrible mistake. And, and that was that I interpreted my service for God by being involved in the church. And everything that I was doing in the church, I was doing in order to please God. And uh, I was earning my way with God. And, uh, and when the church wasn't going right, then I had to do something to make it go better. I had to make it go right. I had to do something to, to change it. And so I became frustrated in that uh, endeavor, and I, I prayed a stupid prayer in the middle of 1982. And I said, God, whatever you have to do with me in order to bring <laughs> revival to this church, I give you permission to do it. Oh, brother. <laughs> and uh, I had no knowledge of the process of Job. I had no knowledge of the process of God and how God works with a man whose desire is to know God. Uh, but I had a desire to know God. And so in my, in my off year, I had this desire to know God, and I gave God permission to do whatever he wanted to do in order to make me into the person uh, that he wanted to, to make me and to bring revival to my church. And within six months, all the wheels were off my wagon. Now, if you don't know what that means, uh, that means that there was four conditions in my body that were, uh, two of them were life-threatening. I had the beginning of cancer in my colon. I had frozen shoulder, which means I couldn't move my arms any more than this. To drive the car was literally painful. To put on a shirt or a sweater uh, or comb my hair, uh, Miriam had to do that for me. And uh, I couldn't get my arms up. I simply couldn't get them up. The doctor said to me that calcium was 
encircling the ball joints of my shoulders so that my shoulders would no longer move. My body was literally saying, slow down, slow down, you're killing yourself. And the doctor said I could give you cortisone injections and that would alleviate the pain. He said I'd initially give you an injection every six months, and then it would become every three months, and then it would become monthly, and then it would become weekly, and then we'd have to put you on some kind of pills and... Uh, and all that would do would alleviate the pain. It won't do anything for the condition. It would just alleviate the pain. I said, isn't there another way? He said, yes, we could go in there and surgically scrape out the calcium. But he said, as long as you continue to live the way you live, uh, the calcium would just come back again. It's a sign of the fact that you're under so much stress and pushing yourself that, uh, that you're going to kill yourself and your body is saying stop. And so he shook his finger at me, and not being a godly man or a Christian, born-again Christian, he said, young man, you're simply going to have to find another way to live. With the threat of uh, cancer developing in my colon, I was, uh, I was in bad shape, particularly with uh, uh, a grinal hernia at the same time. And then my dear wife would be taking me about once every three months to the hospital with what they thought was heart attacks. And I literally developed a desire to die. I literally developed a desire to die. I wanted to die. Mm. I simply wanted to die. And I never thought of suicide, but I knew that death was the only answer to take me out of my misery. It was in about May of um, 1984 that my daughter, who was about to be married in about 10 or 15 days, uh, while we were talking about some wedding plans, she said to me, um, Dad, I have never in 19 years experienced your love in my home. I know you don't approve of the man I'm going to marry, and I don't even care if you come to the wedding. And so I began to see that my children were being taken uh, from me. I had lost them not physically, but I had lost them psychologically. I talked to my three boys, and I said, Lori has mentioned to me that, uh, that they've never experienced my love. And my boys simply laughed in my face, and they said, we haven't either. I loved my children. I wanted to raise them to be the kind of godly people that uh, God would want them to be. But I did not recognize until I prostrated myself before God that I was doing that for my own self-interest in order I would be proven to be a good person. And so rather than my children experiencing my love, they just experienced my selfishness. And so I psychologically I had lost them. Those were the years in Canada when there was a recession and the building industry was uh, at a very, very low ebb and I was under extreme pressure by the owners of the company for which I was working uh, to get rid of the red ink that was at the bottom of the profit and loss statement. And, um, and so various serious things were being laid out before me and so here it was my job and my family and my health were in absolute ruin. And uh, I didn't know where to turn. I was crying out to God. I would go to bed at night, and I'd probably not sleep for any, any more than two hours a night. And I would, get up in the, I would get up then when I couldn't sleep, and I'd go into my study and lay on the floor in my, in my study. I'd cry out to God, and I literally tore my King James Bible apart looking for something that God would say to me. In the morning, sometimes Mary would come. She'd have to take my fingers and release them from my hands because my fingernails were biting into the palms of my hands. I was in such intense agony before God that I, I, did, I just didn't want to go on. 
there were times that I would drive home, and you may not understand this geographically, but uh, I had to come to the main uh, the main highway across uh, southern Ontario. It's called the 401, 401 Highway. It leads to Windsor, which leads to Detroit, and from Detroit I could go down Highway Number 75, and I could find my way all the way to Key West, Florida. And instead of stopping to go into my home and getting off the 401 when it was time to get off, I would just keep right on going, uh, heading, thinking that I could escape from my misery by going to Key West, Florida, and simply get lost. And here I was, sitting on top of the world with a six-digit salary, with an executive car, an executive home, with everything a man could ever want, but he really had nothing. He really had nothing. And so God had to bring me to the place that I would be totally desperate and, and, uh, and give up and surrender and, and give up on myself. Uh, it was in 1980. That, that, uh, that depression or that period of time lasted for 34 months. I was going through that for 34 months of my, of my life at the age of 47. And so I, I went to a bookstore one day, a Christian bookstore, and there it was that I, I found a, a book uh, jiggling uh, on the shelf, and it had a halo around it, and it had a voice that said, By Me. And it happened to be a book called Handbook to Happiness by Charles Solomon. I read the book and went back to the store and, and two days later and I said, could I buy another copy of this book? And they said, we don't, we don't sell that book. And, <laughs> and, and I said, well, I just bought one here two days ago. And they said, well, we don't know about that book. We don't know. We don't. I said, well, look, I'll bring it in and show it to you. I bought it here. It has your sticker on it. And uh, essentially, I guess what had happened was that somebody had sent this bookstore one copy of... Uh, and book to happiness as a preview copy and to see if they would want to sell it. And they didn't even pay any attention to it. They just put it on the shelf and sold it for 12 bucks. And, uh, and I was the one who bought it. Um, I then saw that in this book was the answer that I was looking for. Uh, I'm not sure that any kind of miracle happened as I read the book, except that I, I, I was awakened to the fact that Galatians 2 and 20 could be a vital operational truth in my life, but the difficulty was for the next uh, 12 to 18 months, I tried to make it happen. I tried to make it work. Uh, I was the one who could make life work, and so I tried to make it work. And uh, So I, um, I finally, in, uh, in 1985, in the middle of 1985, I called Dr. Solomon who was at that time in Colorado, mm -hmm. and he said, that's a long way for you to drive to come to see me, son. And, and uh, Well, he didn't say it, but his, his secretary did. And he said he referred me to a man in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, one of his associates. I went there in November of 1985, and on the 21st of November, the day after my birthday in 1985, God did a work in my life to set me free from myself. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I'll never forget how the Lord spoke to me and uh, simply made truth real to me. And I believe in that moment of time, after those 34 months of coming to the end of myself, that God literally, in a moment of time, set me free from myself. There were many things that I had to go home and fix up and address. I had to go back and talk to my children. I had to go back and talk to my employer. Uh, I had to make things right with my pastor. Uh, because I had become angry and upset at him for the way he was treating me, and I, I won't go into that. 
but I had to go back and uh, seek his forgiveness for a wrong attitude towards him and in submission to authority. Uh, but God, God had set me free from myself, and I was now able to go in the power of Christ and, and make things right. And I knew that when, when that uh, car left Indianapolis on uh, about the 23rd of December 1985, I knew that the rest of my life would be different. Uh, my mentor, uh, his name is Bob Toby, uh, said, Don, I know by the way that God has worked in your life that God will be sending his hurting people to you uh, because there are others like you who need to be set free from themselves. Uh, within six days of arriving home, my doorbell rang, and there was a couple whom Miriam and I had met that summer, uh, 1985. We had met them in a camping experience. They had come from Kingston, Ontario, which in, in Canada is about a three-and-a-half-hour drive from where I live. They had come on a, on a whim. But there they stood at the door and they said, Don, our marriage is in trouble and we believe that God has sent us to you for help. Can you help us? And to put a long story short, that was the beginning of a stream of people who have come to our door and, uh, and God has uh, worked in our lives to establish a ministry all across Canada. We have uh, done Grace Life conferences uh, in every province of, of Canada except the province of Prince Edward Island, which is just a little island off the, in the Atlantic or in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But we've been in every province in Canada with Grace Life conferences. We do about uh, anywhere from 12 to 20 a year. And um, it's been an exciting journey. Um, and we've seen many people come to freedom in Christ. Um, we know that the message is not, it's, it's, it's like a pebble falling in the water. It's had a ripple effect. Uh, we have one man who came to know Christ as life through us, who's teaching these principles and these truths in Zambia. And uh, he's, he, every, virtually every month he has conferences with Zambian pastors. And that's all he's there for, is simply to teach the exchange life. Um, we have uh, another couple who was uh, who came to freedom and they kind of discovered Christ as life, and uh, they're working in uh, I believe it's in Vermont at a at a home where they deal with young people, and there they're teaching the exchange life concepts. And um, I'm I'm now much older than I was then, and uh, Graham and I are now looking forward to perhaps passing on the, the ministry to to others. Uh, so that's how the end of my life has become better than the beginning. Let's address some of the things that I've, I've shared with you. My daughter now says to me, Daddy, I only have one wish in my life, and that is that I could be a young little girl again and have the daddy that I have now. My wife says that she has a new husband and she didn't have to get married again. Um, <laughs> About seven weeks after coming to know Christ as life, I was sitting in Miriam's uh, mother's um, uh, living room, and uh, she, she, having known of my difficulty with my shoulders, uh, said, Don, how are your shoulders? And I said, what, my shoulders? And uh, essentially what had happened is my shoulders and my body had healed itself of the calcium that was in my shoulders because now I was trusting in a new life and my body was able to be restored. All the signs of cancer in my colon and the incidences or possibilities have been totally eradicated, 
a doctor is amazed and he said, it just, I just don't understand, but he said, it's just not there anymore. And, um, and so I, I believe that uh, when one comes to discover their source of life in Jesus Christ and the rest of our, uh, the rest of our relationships and the rest of our, uh, um, our bodily functions can be restored in, in wisdom, uh, the heart problem was not a heart problem, it was a gallbladder problem, and that's a story in itself of how the surgery went and, and what happened there, uh, but that, in a, that was a miracle in itself. And the groinal hernery, of course, was, was fixed with surgery. Uh, but God has blessed us immensely over, over the ensuing years, and uh, we're just so glad that God weighs, God's ways with a man are thorough, and when he wants to thrill a man, he'll drill a man. When he wants to enthuse a man, he will crush a man. And uh, so we believe that God, uh, God has worked that way in our lives, and um, we just rejoice in what God has, has been able to do in, in us and through us in touching the lives of others. Thank you for listening. Amen. What a great testimony. John 12, the Lord Jesus says that if a, a grain of wheat is not planted, if it abides alone, it won't multiply. But if it's, if it's planted, then it bears, if it dies to itself, it bears much grain. And I think Don's testimony of death, uh, having his own funeral, uh, a radical denial of self, and claiming by faith his union with Christ uh, has brought a multiplication of life. Uh, he's blessed us. He's um, yes, he been uh, used of God tremendously there in Canada yes. as a leader of the Gideons as well in Canada for a time and many other things we could share but God's ways are certainly higher than our ways uh, we tend to ask God to help us by making us stronger where God actually helps us by making us weaker so we can discover Him as our strength mm -hmm. I think Don's testimony illustrates that so well so Don, thank you for sharing brother mm -hmm. we love you yes. we love you, Miriam. We love you. For your testimony. that's right we actually met Miriam before, Don. Linda invited Miriam to speak at a woman's. You mean you hadn't met Don before then? No. I think no. no. I didn't remember that. We love you, but we hadn't met. Miriam spoke. Linda was leading the uh, denomination's women's ministry, and she invited. I tugged her sleeve and said, "Ask Miriam." And Miriam. What? When you phoned, I didn't know you. We knew of you. Yeah. Yeah. Reputation came from I really never met John nor Linda until you came to Daryl's funeral. Wow. And John John came to the funeral. That's where we met. Their son was in China. And his family still lives, and he's supervising from heaven <laughs> with my mother and sister and others who are cheering us on. You know what's so interesting about your testimony? I mean, I think about it, you know, it's not by a worldly standard, but by, a, you know, Christian standards. You were doing everything right. Mm -hmm. exactly. As a matter of fact, you've done everything that you were supposed to. I mean, you've done it all right. You lived, a wholesome, you lived a wholesome life. I was ready to defend. I was ready to defend you know, everything I had done. You, you know, you would wave a, a church flag. <laughs> but I mean, you've done See, everything I was saved, right. I was saved at seven 
but I didn't come to know Christ's life until I was 47. And uh, God, so what I had done for 40 years. Well, but you did. This is what I'm saying. Not even not not even looking at it from a world standpoint. You look at it from a Christian standpoint. True. You had done what the church teaches you to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had done all your your you know other than doodling while you should have been listening to the sermon. <laughs> That's probably what the problem. That's when you were a little guy like you. But uh, but you know, I'm sitting there just thinking about that. I mean. I mean, what else does it mean? You've done everything you're supposed to do as a Christian, quote unquote. You know, you, you, and so from the outside and everybody in the church, what, what can anybody tell you? you know, what are they going to tell you? Read the Bible more, or or pray more, or uh, that's the answers you're going to get. But the point is, there's, there. I mean, that's the point. That what can anybody tell you? You've already done it. You've, you've done everything you're supposed to do. And yeah, that's, that's why the church couldn't help me. You see, it, during this period, left. during this period of time. Uh, I went to I went to the pastor and said, "Look, I, I'm in trouble. I, I really am desperate. I, I I need help." I said, "Will you meet with me uh, over lunch every Tuesday, just so that we can talk and maybe you can help me?" Well, we met for about four weeks. We met for about four weeks, and he then he finally said to me at the end of that fourth week, he said, "Don, he said I can't help you." He said, uh, "He said I don't even want to see you in my office again." Uh, he said, "You so depress me that I can't handle it." He said, "Don't come again." Oh man, thanks a lot. Um, I have a question. No, yeah, see, he, he was telling me. He said, "Look, we've got this organization in Detroit. You could go to. It's called something or other. We got this psychological. We could get that. Get you." straightened out psychologically by going over here or going there, but you don't seem to want to go there, uh, so I can't help you. He knew what he had. He didn't understand. So, so let me ask you now, all this time that you were growing up in the church, and I don't know what kind of church you were in, but did you understand much about the Holy Spirit? We were experts. We were experts. So you had been taught that part. We were, in your language, we were assembly of God. Okay. We we had all we had the Cadillac of experience. Okay. Um, we knew all about if there was anybody that knew anything about the Holy Spirit, we did. I got you. And and, and y'all, y'all, y'all wrote it, didn't you? But but no, I see what you're saying because I've met people and although they've gone to church all their life, they they really you know never understood who he was. Or and, but see, the reason that we had the Holy Spirit was so the. Holy Spirit could help me to live the Christian life. Yeah, He's gonna help you live your life better, right? So, That's right. Okay. So I had this, ex- I had this great helper that was helping me. Yeah. And any time I wanted to, any time I needed more help, all I'd have to do is go down to the altar at the front on some Sunday night and get juiced up again. Um, man, that's just a. a but by attack. by nine o'clock on Monday morning, the juice was all gone. It's emotionally driven, right, instead of spiritually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, think, you, you think there's a few more people out there in churches that might have it? <laughs> I mean, think about the churches that are full of the exact same thing. But, well, but then when you when you've done not, everything let's not right, go there. Yeah, let's but I mean, when you've done everything right, <laughs> nobody knows what to tell you. You know, it's so. Yeah. Um, so pray that God will multiply uh, these ministries, which yeah, we're called of God to make the fullness of the cross more clear. And to give people an entrance ramp to appropriate Christ's life, mm-hmm. and we praise God for what He's doing. Thank goodness you accidentally surrender. <laughs> Lord, Ignorantly. Do Ignorant. whatever you want to with Peter. And you thought He was going to make you Pope, didn't well, you? If I could tell you, we'll just take another minute. When I prayed that prayer, 
when I prayed that prayer, I said, God, I give you permission to do with me anything you want to do in order to bring revival to my church. I had envisioned this, that I would be in an air crash, or I'd be in a plane crash, or I'd be in a train crash, or something would happen to me that I'd be dead. And my coffin at the front of that church, in a church that would be just packed with people, because this holy and righteous man had been <laughs> taken out from amongst their midst, they would all begin to repent and get right with God. <laughs> I mean, I, I kid you not. That was the foolishness of my pride. You had a self-passion That was real pride. Man, you did get some kind of trophy out of all this, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, she would have her own story to tell, but I, I it's not imagine. pleasant. I think it's, that's, that's a, I mean, I, I'm blessed to be sitting here listening to it, too. It's a wonderful testimony. It's a it's an interesting lesson to to learn because I you know you know where you read a little bit of mine you know my background was alcohol and drugs and, and the life of that so exactly the opposite of everything you were doing I was doing what was ungodly and wrong and uh, it's just interesting to see that you can come to that same point though of brokenness. Chuck calls it uh, Sonny go to meat and flesh or yeah. or uh, yucky flesh or something. Well, um, actually, it's not. Um, it's not our bad flesh that uh, that really is the problem. It's our yeah. good flesh that's the problem. You see, you see. I, I think the the greatest obstacle that God that stands in God's way is our best efforts to do our best for God. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. it's not my bad flesh. It's not it's not the stuff that I do that's bad. Right, it stands in God's way. You can pick that up in a hurry. You can identify that in a hurry. Yeah. But what really is, is is the true obstacle to God doing his work is man doing his best. Because it flies under the radar, doesn't it, Tom? It's it? it flies under the radar, so yeah. identified as hindering what God wants yeah. to do. But our, man's best is what hinders God's best. Mm-hmm. And I guess the answer goes back to exactly where we started today. You know, like what is the answer? Well, you pray and you have to trust that God's going to do the work in us. You know, it's, there's absolutely nothing you know that we do. And and I had to I had to learn that that you see I was I was always taught that I had to make another commitment or I had to make another commitment to God to do my best, rededicate, recommit. Yeah. But what God was waiting for yeah. was a surrender. Philippians 3 gives a good New Testament counterpart where Paul had that good flesh, Pharisee, tribe of Benjamin, all those good things, but he had to consider that rubbish so that Christ could be his righteousness. And then to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of suffering, be conformable to his death. Um, Linda, why don't you lead us in prayer for Don and for Miriam, for God's blessing on their testimony and ministry, and then that'll wrap us up. Father, we thank you once again for this time together. And we thank you, Lord, for for Don and for Miriam. We thank you for both of their testimonies, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that he did pray that prayer so many years ago. And, Lord, that you brought him safely to the end of himself so that you may show yourself strong through him and through Miriam and the ministry that you brought to their doorstep. We thank you, Lord, for all the people who have come through their ministry and will in the future come to their ministry. We thank you, Lord, that they're about to have another advanced seminar training that will continue through most of the year. And we ask, Lord, that you draw those people who are to be in that group and that they would be prepared even now um, to learn more of you. 
that you would empower Don and, and strengthen uh, Miriam and, and all of her duties. And uh, Father, give them wisdom for their future, uh, if they are to stay put or to move on, uh, to be close to their daughter, or that you'd give them a strong sense of your, your will for their lives. And uh, we ask that you would supply all their needs, spiritual, physical, monetary needs, Lord, that you would take care of them, we pray. Give them a safe journey back, Lord. We pray that they'll be refreshed, that they would just uh, enjoy their time together, Lord. And uh, we're so grateful, Father, that they were here tonight to share with us. We pray that Don's testimony would um, renew our commitment, our surrender to you, Lord, and uh, also that you would lead each one of us, Lord, be a true testimony to you, that you would live through us, Father, and that we just get ourselves out of the way. Father, thank you for this night. Uh, thank you for this home. We ask your blessing on it, each one, Lord, and bring us home in safety. We give you praise, glory. Thank you for being our life, Jesus, Heavenly Father, and sweet spirit. We thank you in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Good looking email. Oh my God, I was strong.